This is NiceAce Now, your source for real-time and on-demand professional learning designed specifically with the independent school educator in mind. A podcast of interviews, seminars, and conference talks to listen to whenever and wherever you like. Brought to you by the New York State Association of Independent Schools. I'm George Swain. Social psychologist Dolly Chug, the author of The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight Bias, discusses what we can do to identify and address implicit bias in this interview with Marcy Mann at the Nice Ace Heads Conference in November of 2018. Well, we're here at the 2018 Nice Ace Annual Conference for Heads of School, and I want to extend a warm welcome to Dolly Chug, a social psychologist and author and independent school parents, yes, who just spoke to us about her work on how good people fight bias. And she's written a book on this topic entitled The Person You Mean to Be. Thank you, Dolly, for being with us. Thank you, Marcy. Please tell us about your background a little bit and how did you come to this work of helping people to fight their own implicit bias? Oh, gosh. It, it's, uh, they say all research is me-search, and I think it's, uh, I come to this work from a place of myself wanting to do better, frankly. Um, my background uh, professionally is that I uh, worked in the business world for 11 years. I have an MBA, and then I had an epiphany that I uh, wanted to be in the world world of students and ideas. I started my PhD in my uh, early 30s and then became a professor at NYU in my late 30s, starting at the most junior position. Um, and I've had a really terrific experience doing the work of trying to unpack the ways good people grapple with their identities or what I call the psychology of good people. Tell us about implicit bias. You just spoke a lot about it. What is it and how do we demonstrate it in everyday life? Yeah. So implicit bias simply refers to the associations we have in our mind that we may not be aware of. So one example is if I say peanut butter, you say jelly, because that's a quick association that was formed and learned at some point in your life if you grew up probably in the U.S. Um, implicit biases are other associations that we've learned from the society around us. It could be something like um, white people good or black people bad, or white people safe, black people dangerous, or women home, men work. Um, and these are associations that may sit closely in our mind, but may or may not agree with what we consciously believe to be true. I, for example, consciously associate women with the workplace and with home, and I associate men with the workplace and home. But when I take something called the IAT, or the Implicit Association Test, which is um, something everyone can do free online. Uh, I, I see an association revealed that shows an implicit gender bias, very strong one in my case, associating women with the home and men with work. Well, since you mentioned it, tell us a little bit about the I, this in, implicit association test. Explain to us what that is. Yeah, so it's a measure that psychologists have developed to try to capture associations we have in our mind that we may not be aware of. They measure it using a response time measure that's at the millisecond level. So these are things that we're doing under conditions of automaticity. We're not thinking about it. It's just split second fast. Um, the way someone takes it is they go to implicit 
www.harvard.edu. You don't need to log in or register or give your email address or anything. Just go click the button that says come in as a guest. And then you have a selection of topics that you can focus on. You'll need about 10 uninterrupted minutes. Let's say you click race or gender or religion or sexual orientation. You'll go then to a 10 minute task where you make split second decisions on your keyboard that will look like you're playing a video game. And the idea there will be to see which associations are easier for you to make versus harder for you to make through this task. At the end, you get a score. You are anonymous, so your score will simply get dumped into an aggregate database, but you will have your personal result from that test. I often encourage people, if they are willing, to take the test more than once on different days at different times, because while it is a good measure, it can move a bit based off of the circumstances of your day, so it's good to see what your trend lines are. Thank you. And since we work with children, I'm wondering, what is the earliest age at which you recommend someone can take and learn from taking that IAT? Yeah, so certainly um, middle grade kids can take it. It's a they're probably better at these tasks than we are, the quick video game-like task. Um, there are IATs that have been developed for younger kids and even for kids before they're able to read, but those are used more in research environments. I don't believe they're publicly available. So most educators today are aware of the concept of a growth mindset that you write about in your book. How can having a growth mindset help us in our work to become better leaders in the area of implicit bias? Yeah, so on, on the issue of implicit bias, what the studies are showing in a pretty consistent way is that all of us have some implicit bias that contradicts our explicit beliefs. In a, the example of race in the US, it appears that something like 75% to 85% of Americans have an implicit race bias that favors whites over blacks. Well, maybe you don't have that particular implicit race bias, but maybe you have an implicit gender bias or an implicit sexual orientation bias. And again, the key here is that it contradicts your explicit belief. That's why the title of my book is The Person You Mean to Be. It's not the person I want you to be. It's the person you want to be, and how are you seeing through the IAT um, a different version of yourself emerge? A growth mindset is a way to navigate that, because that's a painful thing. To realize that the person you mean to be isn't always the person you are requires us to embrace those mistakes and learn from them in the way that we know growth mindset is a really powerful mindset for our students. We know that's how they push through challenges, how they persist when they make mistakes in math, in science, in English, in sports. We can do that too when we make the mistakes that emerge from implicit bias. And what are some ways that we can work at shedding these implicit biases that we have? So the good news and the bad news. The bad news first, we don't actually have a magic bullet solution to undo our implicit biases. They were formed over our lifetimes and they don't get reversed right away. The good news is they were formed through the culture around us and we can actively change the culture around us. The sort of microcosm worlds we live in, we can think about the media we consume, the people we surround ourselves with, the perspectives we bring into our own perspective. We can also think about systems and processes. This is where there's lots of good news. Even though I may not be able to always control the ways in which my implicit biases leak into my decisions, I can control, for example, what information is available to me when I make that decision. So do I need to see names on a resume when I go over them? Maybe, maybe not. Do I need to know what their address is? Maybe, maybe not. Why is that relevant at the point of me deciding whether they make my shortlist? Um, 
that's an example of a system or process where I can de-bias the system even if I can't de-bias my mind. You also um, shared some quick wins with us. Um, and I'm wondering if you could, uh, quick wins in fighting bias that would be fairly easy to implement in schools, it seemed to me. I wonder if you could share a couple of those with us. Sure. Um, one quick win is to think about the names of everyone in our building or on our campus, uh, particularly students. Uh, when we're, we're working so hard to create inclusive learning environments, it's incredibly challenging when we know how to pronounce some names because they're familiar to us from the culture we come from and then we don't know how to pronounce other names or we've assumed how to pronounce other names because they're unfamiliar to us based on the cultural background we have. As a result, I know as a teacher one thing I do is I tend to call less on the, the students whose names I don't know how to pronounce so that I don't have to say the name or I wait till they're looking right at me so I can just point at them instead of having to say their name. That's not what we're striving for as inclusive instructors. And so one thing we could do is rather than um, avoiding the issue as I often do or rather than uh, creating a, 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 a shorter name or a nickname rather than asking them repeatedly to explain it to us or mispronouncing the name repeatedly is create documents or audio files with people's preferred pronunciations of their name. Just have that be part of the data we have about every person in the building. That way, anybody who wants to see the pronunciation of the name can check it. Another quick win is to think about the meetings that we have in our schools. Think about meetings in the same way that we think about teaching. We, when we teach, we think very intentionally about airtime and wait time and diverse perspectives. We know how to do this as instructors. If we think of our meetings with adults as having similar properties, we can work towards not just better meetings, but more inclusive meetings. For example, ensuring that we have balanced airtime, not airtime dominated by a particular group. Um, studies of communication scholars who do study meetings do show that women are interrupted more than men, that people of color are given less credit than white people. These are patterns we can interrupt simply by running better meetings. And in what other more systemic ways can school leaders promote the work of teachers and students to confront unconscious biases? So I think part of it is doing the work of noticing our systemic biases around us. Um, and that is everything from thinking about looking around our buildings and noticing how we, in honoring the past, for example, and honoring the traditions that have made our school great, what are the ways in which those traditions and past send a signal that's different than what we're trying to signal about the future? That's a systemic pattern we can think about. We can think about our um, pipelines and the attributions we make about this group or that group doesn't apply for a position and what it means to actually go create a pipeline or build a pipeline or find a pipeline or recruit one as opposed to post an ad and wait for it. These are other interruptions we can make of systemic patterns. Thank you. Do you have any last words you'd like to share or anything you wish I had asked you? Oh, well, all I want to say is that while this work, we use the words discomfort and it's hard work and all of that is true. I don't want to sugarcoat it. There's lots of moments in which I hate that I do this work because I have to think about my own mistakes all the time. 
But there's also great joy and exhilaration and growth in this area. There is liberation in knowing that you can get better at this. And what I love is when we think about anything else that we've started as a beginner at and grown in, when we think about the exhilaration that's come with that, imagine applying that to something that we care so deeply about the students and the faculty and their sense of belonging and inclusion in our building. Thank you. You know, when you and I met earlier today, you suggested that I talk to you about whatever was in my head and in my heart. Mm -hmm. And I want to thank you for sharing with us what, what's in your head and in your heart. Oh, thank Marcy. you very much. Thank you so much. You're I really welcome. enjoyed this. Thank you for listening to this Nice Ace Now podcast. Production support comes from Andrew Cook. Interview and conference support by Judith Sheridan and Barbara Swanson. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. For additional podcasts, as well as information about our conferences and other programming, please visit our website, nysais.org.